We're in a series called Attitudes to Master Life. There are just a few key things every human being needs to do life well. God did not make you to have a bad haircut and a lousy life. That's a choice. Attitude is the way you think. It's a mindset. The Bible says, as a man thinks, so is he. So if we can't change the way you think, you're not going to change very much about your life. The Bible says, let this mind, way of thinking, attitude, be in you that was in Jesus. In other words, start thinking the way he thinks. And life has an amazing way to turn in your favor. It doesn't matter if you're Chinese, Caucasian, African-American. I was raised in a culture that thought a certain way. I lived and was raised by grandparents who thought a certain way. Shut the door. Cut the lights off, Ricky. Don't let the heat out. And many of you come out of those same situations. And it really does affect how you think. But if you'll let Scripture dictate how you think and the attitudes that you need, it's amazing how your life will suddenly begin to take off. You can do this. Even a pagan can do this. It won't go to heaven. But they have a good life on earth. You ought to be at least as good as a pagan if you're a believer. Never pay somebody for a bad attitude. You can get that for free. Right? You're not born with a bad attitude or a good attitude. Attitude is a choice. And you ought to teach those kids about it too. Get a better attitude about you. Stop talking that way, thinking that way. Because it affects your behavior. So we've been looking at attitudes. Part one, we talked about commitment. Commitment. If you want a good life, if you want to do well in any career, any kind of business, or marriage, for God's sake, you can't do it without commitment. No coach says to his team, okay, boys, get out there and give me about 50%. No. Well, you can't do that in marriage. You can't do that in a career, business, church, or life. It's 100%. You know, a chicken lays an egg, but when you have bacon, that's commitment. The pig had to lay the life down. And God changed the world with some people who were committed. Not, and that's never a crowd. So how committed are you? That's an attitude. Finish what you start. Do it with excellence. Second attitude today, gratitude. Gratitude. Luke 17, Luke 17, verse 11 through 19 says, now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going to a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance because that was the law. And they cried out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, go show yourself to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Let me pause here. Jesus said, you go show yourselves to the priest to confirm you're healed. <clears throat> Sometimes in charismatic Pentecostal circles, uh, extreme faith teaching, they will teach you you don't need to go to a doctor. If God has healed you, it will sustain an examination. Jesus himself told them to go to the priest who were the doctors to say, let them confirm you don't have leprosy because you could not re-enter a home, a marriage, contact with people, or temple worship until you were pronounced clean by the priest. 
So if Jesus told them to go show yourself, go get an x-ray, get an MRI, go get a blood test. And if Jesus has done it, praise God, it'll sustain an examination. But I've had people die because they, they got an arm that was swelled up. I'm remembering a lady. She says, I don't have cancer. I said, you got cancer. But let's, get, let's pray to believe that God will heal it. No, I'm healed already. She would never go to a doctor. She died of cancer. Just foolish. And all that sometimes, Jesus didn't do that to people. People do that to people in the name of Jesus. All right, so no nonsense. I'm sorry I got on a rabbit trail there, but that's for somebody sitting in this room. If you God healed you, it'll sustain an examination. He may be in the process of healing you. Maybe it's not complete yet, but it still will ex sustain examination. So one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. Did anybody read that in your Bible about a loud voice? How about some of you Episcopalians or Methodists, especially you Catholics? You can be loud in church. I wish half my Caucasian friends would go to a black church for one hour. It's a three-and-a-half-hour service, but I wish you'd go just to hear how them people will praise God out loud. Some of you think that's a sin. That is not a sin. And so they're throwing, they say, praise the Lord in a loud voice. I guarantee you if God had healed you of stage four cancer, I'd do a little shouting, running around, and say something too. Well, look at you. There is hope. There is a God in heaven. Yes, so he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a half-breed Samaritan. And Jesus asked, hey, uh, excuse me, weren't there ten cleansed? Where's the other nine? Has nobody returned to church this week to give praise to God except this outcast who didn't vote your way in the election? I'm adding that because he's talking to a Jewish man and they hate these hate these Samaritan half-breeds, and they hate the Jews. Then he said to him, rise, go, your faith has made you well. So here's a group of guys, desperate, who approach Jesus for healing. They're desperate because they all have leprosy. And I've talked about it in past messages, but just for a review in case you weren't there, uh, leprosy would begin with a general sense of fatigue and pain in the joints. Then small lumps or spots would appear on the skin and would continue to grow until they were unrecognizable. Then the sores would ulcerate. They would drain. They had a foul smell. They would lose their eyebrows. Even the vocal cords would ulcerate. Then came the loss of sensation. And that's the most dangerous because when you went to sleep on a street in a slum area, rats would come and eat off fingers and toes. And unless you were awake to stop it, you wouldn't feel pain. I've often thought maybe pain is a gift to tell you something's wrong. Ultimately, there would be loss of mental function that would end in a coma and then death. So there's no cure. So in Jesus' day, the first sign of leprosy was a death sentence to people. You weren't allowed to come near people. You couldn't go into town without risk of being stoned. A house that had a leper that went into it was declared unclean, had to be, had to be burned up. One writer states you had to stay 50 yards away from people if you had leprosy. So imagine the thought of never being touched again. You can't hug your wife. You can't hug your kid. Never to know the embrace of a spouse. No touch. And to make it worse, there's a moral stigma attached to leprosy. In Jesus' day, other diseases, if they were cured, were said to be healed. But leprosy had to be cleansed. Lepers weren't just sick. They were considered unclean, defiled. 
Now, if you put that in our day, think about a disease in our day that's contagious, that's caused great fear, is understood to be fatal, although now they're making some medical breakthroughs, and it has a moral stigma attached to it. Leprosy would be very much comparable to AIDS in our day. So imagine you're one of these 10 men. You're in the final stages of this disease. You've consulted the finest specialist. Your HMO has thrown you out. There's no hope. You're in great pain. You're disfigured. And there's no hope. You're going to die. <sighs> then something happens. One day the pain's gone. Your body's completely whole. You go to the doctor who, in amazement, examines you and says, I don't understand it. I cannot explain it. The disease is gone. Your nightmare is over, Frank. You're going to live. Well, that's exactly what happens here with these ten lepers. They can't get near Jesus, but they cry out. And Jesus turns to them and proclaims healing and says, go show yourself to the priest. And if a leper was cleansed, he had to be declared clean by a priest before he could resume a normal life. Now, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't heal them first. He tells them to go to the priest as though you've already been healed. So it's a test of faith. And they obey, although they still have leprosy at that moment of obedience. But they obey, and as they're walking, something happens. Whereas their skin had been blotched and disfigured, their skin is pinker and smoother than a little new baby's behind. <laughs> That's about the smoothest skin I can think of. So where there's been mutilated stumps, now their hands and feet have all their fingers and toes. Can you imagine? Suddenly their nightmare is over and hope returns. They're going to live and not die. And they can run and shout and hug the kids. They'll be able to live in their own home, think about tomorrow, do all the things that people usually just take for granted. This is a unique moment to know that every one of these things is a gift beyond calculation. Luke says when one of the ten saw he was healed, he turned back. Maybe the other nine asked him, where are you going, Frank? And the guy said, we got to go back to Jesus and thank him. We've got our lives back. But the others didn't go. Why not? Don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. You know, human beings can want something so bad, pray so desperately, get it, and then take it for granted and move on like nothing happened. One of the ten returns to Jesus. He runs all the way there, something he couldn't do with leprosy, and he falls on the ground, throws his arms up, and touches Jesus. The first touch he's had in years, maybe, maybe since he was a teenager. You know, touch, touch is a powerful thing. When we took our children to Disney World many, many years ago, when Mickey Mouse came out on the street, he got mobbed like a celebrity by kids wanting to touch him who were jumping up and down. Once, a few years ago, Cindy and I were eating lunch outside in Malibu, California, where I was preaching, when the actor Alec Baldwin sat down right beside me. And Cindy started jumping up and down, wanting to touch. <laughs> nah, she didn't do that, but it really did happen. One of the most powerful forms of expressing gratitude and praise is touch. touch to embrace somebody, to put a hand on somebody's shoulder. And this guy is touched by Jesus. A man who hadn't been touched in years. And Luke said he praised God with a loud voice. And he keeps on thanking Jesus over and over again. He can't stop. Let me pause just a minute and read from the Passion Translation. Psalms 103. This is so good. 
Listen to this. Yahweh, you are my soul's celebration. How could I ever forget the miracles of kindness you've done for me? You kissed my heart with forgiveness in spite of all I've done. You've healed me inside and out from every disease. You've rescued me from hell. You've saved my life. You've crowned me with love and mercy. You satisfy my every desire with good things. You've supercharged my life so that I can soar again like a flying eagle in the sky. May God supercharge you. And what a blessing that he's done for every one of us that we could live with mild, timid, no praise, no thanksgiving, just complaint. Luke goes on to say this man wasn't a Jew. He's a Samaritan. Half-breeds, racially mixed, hated by the Jews. Uh, you know, I was just thinking, I tweeted today. If everybody in your church thinks the way you do, acts the way you do, votes the way you do, dresses the way you do, believes everything you do, you probably don't have a church. <laughs> church is a mixture. It really is. People from all backgrounds, all cultures, all races, totally mixed up. That's the way God comes to get us. We all kind of messed up a little bit. But if God did not come to clone you. He came to transform you. You don't have to dress like everybody. You don't have to act like everybody. We would hope that in time, God's word would help me think like he does, behave like he does, but food and music and style and culture and taste, people are coming in all the time and they're at different places in their life. They can't see everything the way you see it. If you came from a terrible background of racism and prejudice and somebody came from a, from a culture of, of entitlement and uh, abundance, they, the two just can't, uh, unless one has a real new heart and a new way of thinking, can't seem to relate to one another. Can't seem to understand why this person is like they are. You have to find out about their background. If you tried to study me, don't. In my background, I've been raised by every relative in Texas and in South Carolina. And my parents were divorced and remarried like five times. I mean, I was a transient. I've been touched and messed up by everybody. I should be a serial killer. I should be in therapy. So being a military kid, being raised in the military, reserve officer and flying, I thought people say, well, I don't know why he's so hard. Well, maybe if you knew a little bit about me, you might understand. Maybe I could understand why you're such a wuss if I knew your background. I'm just kidding, just kidding. This is real, isn't it? I mean, it really is real. Now, so the other nine were apparently Jewish, but this grateful man was a Samaritan, but he still comes back to Jesus. Although he had voted Democrat and Jesus had voted Republican, I'm making this up just to show you, didn't matter. This guy changed my life. I'm going to thank him. You know, God will use people not like you to help you. Unbelievable. He will even sometimes use unsaved people to help you. Be thankful for that. I mean, the last guy who would ever touch Jesus would be a leper and a Samaritan. But gratitude works that way. It's those who receive what is given to them in life as a gift that become grateful, as opposed to those who say, I'm entitled to it. So the guy runs back to Jesus, touches him, thanks him, and then Jesus responds, and you can kind of tell by his response a little measure of disappointment. He asked three questions. Weren't there ten of you? Where are the other nine? 
Well, they didn't get up this morning, Lord. They said it was a little cold. They heard there might be thunderstorms in the traffic on 281. It's just been a nightmare. A lot of construction. Did only one return to praise God? Him, a Samaritan? One you wouldn't even expect to be grateful, but he came. See, gratitude changes you. I was saying, Lord, all these nice people in San Antonio don't come. Give me all the nasty people in this city. Give me all the bad people in this city. Give me people who feel like they are just trash. Give them all to me. Bring them in here. Flood this place with it. Let all the self-righteous people leave. I mean, it, it, it's like, do you know how many people are out there at home right now that have no hope of a future, and they're still not in church because they've had a bad experience or they've heard about bad experiences? They haven't met the real Jesus or heard about him. Or they think it's wonderful, wonderful. And I made a, a, an issue of saying, I'm not looking for nice people. If the truth was known about you, there wouldn't be any nice people in this room, I probably. But I won't pray that. Don't worry. Nobody's going to know. <laughs> but gratitude changes you. It opens your heart to God. And then, after embracing this former leper, Jesus said, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. Literally, your faith has saved you. So apparently, Luke wants all of us to know this guy not only got physical healing, but eternal life as well. Jesus not only cleansed his body, but his soul. Ten of them are healed. Ten of them are given this incredible gift, and only one lives with a heart of gratitude. Ten are healed, only one returns. Hey, just a thought. There are so many things to be thankful for. I was thinking today, we have social security system. You can go to other nations that don't have anything like it, and you can gripe about this and the government, but it may be a way God has provided for you to sustain at least a life. Are you thankful you have it? Maybe you've been forced to go on welfare. Most people, most nations don't have that. Well, thank God. They didn't have it in Jesus' day. Thank God it's a means to take care of you if necessary and needed. Instead of griping about this or it's not this much or I wish we had more, that's that entitlement. What you ought to be saying is, God, thank you I have this to sustain me and the babies so we have something. Be grateful for what you have. Just be grateful. It's so easy in this toxic culture to gripe and complain about everything. We have really gone hyper-negative. There's so much to be grateful for, friends to be grateful for. So where's your heart in this matter of gratitude? Parents have a question we ask our children. My parents ask it of me. I ask it of my children and now my grandchildren. After somebody gives your kid a gift or has done your child a favor, parents always say to the kids, generally, what do you say, Billy? What do you say? And what's the expected response the child is supposed to give? Thank you. And even though their response is a bit mechanical and the child doesn't feel gratitude, we want them to learn to offer thanks. See, it's, it's not, well, I'm not going to do it if it's not sincere. Yes, you will do it, sincere or not. We'll worry about sincere coming later. But it's the right thing to do. That's why you do it, feeling or no feeling. Sometimes we need to offer thanks even when our heart doesn't feel like it because it's the right thing to do. I owe a debt of gratitude. On my birthday, we had so many people coming from London, Indonesia, uh, California, Arizona. People came from everywhere. All my old rowdy friends sounded like NFL football night, didn't it? And we had a party. And gifts and cards, I, I, I was just went to every single person and thank them from a grateful heart that I had to wait 75 years for you to show up. Okay. <laughs> but I was so grateful for everybody. Every card, 
every, every pat on the shoulder, a hug, every gift. Incredible. I mean, nothing to feel entitled to, just really, really grateful. That's a good thing to do. I want my kids to have that. And our hope is that one day our children won't just parrot thanks, but they will live with a grateful heart, that they will become grateful people, not a bunch of spoiled, entitled kids. Gratitude is a real simple deal. What do you say, Billy? Thank you. The ability to express gratitude and offer heartfelt praise and thanksgiving is one of the fundamental signs of life and spiritual wholeness. David said to God in Psalms 119, 175, let me live that I might praise you because gratitude flows out of a vision that all of life is a gift. You woke up today. That's a gift of God. G.K. Chesterton wrote, here ends another day during which I have had eyes and ears and hands and a great world around me and tomorrow begins another day. Why am I allowed to? Because some aren't. Why am I allowed to? I'll tell you why. Because you have a God who loves you. And every night he says, hey, I'm going to give you the gift of rest tonight. And every morning he says, now, wake up, and I'm going to give you the gift of life again. Every morning I wake up and slide, take 10 minutes to get out of bed. I say, God, thank you for the gift of life today. Thank you. Thank you. The body's working. Thank you for another life. You say, it sounds so trite. I'm sincere. I'm very grateful because I've seen some of you at 70. And I'm way past you, and it's all you can do to get in a car. And I'm thanking God I can get out of bed and get out of the car. Life is a good thing when it's lived as God intended to be lived. It's a gift. So kind of where's your heart on that? Because the alternative to a life of gratitude is life with a heart that's chronically discontent, complaining, judgmental, and dissatisfied. See? It's the heart of a person who lives with a demanding spirit. No sense of awe, no sense of wonder. You just take stuff for granted, people for granted, months and days for granted, and you live with a sense of entitlement. I'm just entitled to all that I have. I was telling the, the group last night, we have such a multicultural racial church. Some of the young, uh, some, some of you that came from a minority background need to hug old people from your background who had to pay a price for you to enjoy the liberty and freedom and abundance you have now. My African-American constituents and old friends would be afraid to be pulled over by a cop in the South back in the 50s and early 60s. Uh, they, they, the young people, they have no idea the discrimination you went through. And every now and then you want to jerk a knot in one of their tails and say, hey, you better be grateful for the life and liberty that you're experiencing right now because we paid for that. You didn't pay for it. You were born on third base, and you think you hit a triple. You did not hit a triple. Your mom and dad and grandma and granddad paid that price, laid their life down for it. I didn't have that in my background. They did. But I am grateful my kids have an opportunity today in this country. you got an opportunity to be a truck driver and become a star. You can do just about anything in this country. People suck their thumb and complain. Dear God. There's more opportunity. I wish we could take a bus load, a plane load of these whining, complaining people. And let me take you to another country. You will kiss the tarmac when you get off the plane in America. You'll be so glad. You'll be so glad. We have such abundance here. Ingratitude just makes a heart grow smaller and smaller, harder and colder every day. That's a miserable way to live. The thing about gratitude is you can't force yourself to feel grateful. 
So how do I open myself up to it? How do I cultivate a grateful heart? I'm going to give you five quickie. Number one, learn to be grateful for imperfect gifts. Learn to be grateful for imperfect gifts. Have you ever received an imperfect gift? <laughs> well, in this world, that's all you're going to get. Hey, if you're married, you're sitting next to an imperfect gift. Don't look. Don't look. If you wait until your children clean their rooms perfectly to praise them, you'll never praise them. Your body is a gift. How many of you have an imperfect gift? Don't raise your hand, Bobby. All right. You know, we go through life thinking if I just had somebody else's body, then I'd be great. Well, just give you a few years, some gravity. It, it, you'll be in the same boat. Yeah. You'll get furniture disease. You know, your chest will fall in your drawers. Stuff happens. Just inevitable. Yeah. You know, you, your legs look like a GPS map with all the, all the lines on them. <laughs> this is deteriorating very fast, isn't it, honey? Yeah. So your body may not be perfect, but it's a darn good thing to have. It's better than not having one. So I got to learn to be grateful for my body, for my home, for my friends, for my work, for my mind, for my life, flawed as it might be. I'm grateful because if I wait for perfect gifts, I'll wait the rest of my life and never be grateful. I got to learn to be grateful for imperfect gifts because in this world, that's the only kind you're going to get. Number two, I will learn gratitude in times of anxiety and frustration. You know, there's a link between anxiety and gratitude. You find a lump, you're taking a shower, maybe it's a lump in the breast, and suddenly you're filled, oh, wonder what that is. I wonder if that's a tumor. I wonder if that's cancer. And you go in for tests, a lot of anxiety, and then the word comes back from the doctor after your checkup, it's benign. Everything's okay. And you are suddenly, right, flooded with gratitude. Oh, thank God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank somebody. You'll be grateful. See, nothing has really changed. It, it wouldn't, you wouldn't be grateful if you hadn't experienced the anxiety of that moment first. See, nothing really changed. But anxiety taught you that what you once took for granted is a wonderful gift. Yeah, it is. And you're flooded with gratitude that you've got it. It's about perspective. Here's a letter from a girl in college. I've used it in a few years ago. Dear Mom and Dad, I have so much to tell you. Because of the fire in my dorm room set off by the student riots, I experienced temporary lung damage, had to go to the hospital. While I was there, I fell in love with the orderly. We've moved in together. I dropped out of school when I found out I was pregnant. Then he got fired because of his drinking. So we're going to move to Alaska where we might get married after the birth of the baby. Signed, your loving daughter. P.S. None of that really happened, but I flunked chemistry. Please keep it in perspective. Yeah, perspective. So too often we try to escape anxiety, and part of what keeps us from experiencing lasting gratitude is that we just settle for little happiness fixes. We turn on the TV, we, we don't want to have to think, or we take a drink, or we overwork, or we got to buy something. Instead of facing life, including the painful aspects of it, fully and squarely. So authentic gratitude comes in the midst of pain and suffering, or it doesn't come at all. You'll learn gratitude in times of anxiety and frustration when you're open and honest in them. The third way to cultivate a grateful heart is when I express gratitude often and openly. You open yourself to gratitude when you express it, even if you don't feel it. Sincere words of gratitude have enormous power. Do you know how powerful your words of thank you are to people around you in your world? 
Maybe you need to speak those words to somebody in your life. Thank you. I'm very grateful. A coach, a teacher, a person who believed in you and breathed life into you, that had dreams for you, that comforted you or cheered you on. What do you say? Thank you. Write a note. Make a phone call. Give them a hug. Or do something extravagant once in a while. Buy a gift for them. What do you say? Thank you. Thank you. I'm very grateful. Number four, you open your heart to gratitude when you devote yourself to worshiping God. Now, this theme runs all through the Bible. Give thanks to God at all times. Let us enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. That's Psalms 100. That's why when we come into a church, we start off with praise and worship because he says, when you enter my court, when you enter my presence, first come in thanking me, praising me. And half of you come in 30 minutes late with no praise, complaining about the parking. What a great way to enter the Lord's presence. I think he might want to just give you a good old slap and say, wake up, smell the coffee, be grateful. I saved you from hell. I, I, I have good plans for your future. I want to do you good, not evil. We owe him a great debt of gratitude. And so I come in just with a thankful heart. Sometimes I feel like it. Sometimes I don't feel like it. But he's always worthy. You know, God doesn't love you because of who you are. He loves you because of who he is. And I am so glad because he couldn't love me for who I am. What are you looking at me for? He couldn't love you either. <laughs> I know some of you very, very well. I find it hard to love you. Okay, not true. Not true. So believer, when we assemble, devote yourself to worship. Thank God for all of his benefits. See, worship is not a consumer pastime. And life has to be larger than just getting my needs met. You know, offering thanks to God, that's worship. It's not primarily about me, although when you do it, you kind of get freed up from yourself. And that's a good thing. But when we gather, it's to do what the one leper did. To recognize that everything I have is a gift. I did not ask to be born. I did not ask to be born in America. I did not ask to be born to my parents. I didn't ask for the genetic makeup of my body, and neither did you. And every gift you have, the wisdom you have, the skill you have, the talent you have, it's a gift from God, which is why whether you're an athlete or a politician or a, a musician or business person, and God gives you incredible skill and ability, you ought to always at some point acknowledge the fact it is a blessing and the grace of God. I am very grateful for what he's done for my life. It is through the church he saved me. It is through the church I found purpose and meaning in life. It is through the church I found uh, a, a new way to live. I owe everything I have to Jesus, everything, no matter what your career may be. I am so great. He's put great people in my life, great friends who have also supercharged and enriched my life. Are you grateful for those people? I mean, I got all kind of friends sitting in here like that who do things they're not paid for, don't have to do, and get nothing out of it, and most people will never know they did it. And I am so grateful for that kind of love and friendship. We also remember God's supreme gift, don't we? That Jesus went to the cross for you, for me. He died for my sins, in my place, and gave me the gift of eternal life. Buddha didn't do that for you. Muhammad didn't do that for you. Oh, they got all kind of rules and regulations, you know, get a bomb kit, blow yourself up, go to paradise. <laughs> I don't know how many virgins are left in heaven, but by now they must be running low, so I don't know. <laughs> the stupidest theology I ever heard in my life. 
And yet our Savior says, I'm going to do everything you wish you could do, try to do, but you can't do. I'm going to do it for you. That's amazing. That's grace. Wow. And like that leper, we come to God's feet and we cry out in a loud voice, God, thank you. And five and last, I open myself up to a heart of gratitude with the discipline of noticing, being aware. You know, ingratitude is kind of a moral blindness, a blindness to the goodness of being alive, the beauty of creation, the love of friends, the joy of work, the blindness to the fact life pretty well is good. It's good. So tonight when you go to bed, what do you say? Tomorrow morning when God opens your eyes and you're given again the gift of wakeful life, what do you say? When you look into the face of somebody who loves you, what do you say? When you eat something and it tastes so good and you're so glad for the gift of taste, what do you, Sunday night, remember how cold it was and wet? So Cindy made chicken chili with jalapeno sauce and white beans and she had brand muffins and some of Tim Powell and Pam Powell's bee honey. They, they raised bees. And I put that honey on. I ate that hot, spicy chili. I said, oh, Jesus, this tastes so good. Thank you for the gift of taste. I said it out loud. Some of you grab a barbecue rib. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the smell. Thank you for the taste. Thank you for the tang of that sauce. Thank you. Thank you. That's a gift. There's people that can't taste. Did you know that? What do you say? Thank you. When you can open your eyes and see the beauty of something, what do you say? When you can hear the voice of your children or a telephone ring, what do you say? When you open this Bible and God says to you, I knit your body together in your mother's womb before you were aware of anything. I gave you the day of your birth and I've numbered the days of your life. And just as I feed sparrows, I feed you. Just as I clothe lilies of the field, I clothe you. I've given you a heart to know me. And I've given you the ultimate gift of my son to die for your sins. When you read that God has given you gift after gift after gift, what do you say? Thank you. Thank you. Praise you, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Glory to God. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.